0: you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of James, chapter 5. Last week in the sermon, we came to the end of the third point of three points in James' sermon. That's what the book of James is. It's a sermon. We see it in the form of a letter, but it is, in fact, a sermon. It has an introduction, the first chapter. It has a conclusion, which we will begin looking at today. Today. And in between are the three points, and the three points are mentioned at the end of chapter one. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So we are to control our tongues, we are to care for those who are in need, and we are to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Keeping ourselves from being polluted from the world means, in part, a right use of wealth. And what we looked at last week, the first six verses of chapter 5, sounds so harsh that many commentators, many people believe that's not actually written about Christians. That he's actually talking about unbelievers because Christians would never be like that. Um, James is not opposed to rich people. He's not against the rich people. In fact, in chapter 1, which is the introduction, he talks about the fact that we are all ambushed at various times when we least expect them by trials. And one of the trials is being rich. And one of the trials is being poor. The being poor we could see as a trial, but being rich, really, is, is that a trial? James tells us that it is. Um, what James says, and what we find in the rest of the New Testament, is that being rich is not wrong, it is not incompatible with being a Christian, but it is, in fact, a danger. That there is a danger to put our trust in wealth rather than in God. And by the way, this isn't just a danger for rich people. It's a danger for those who want to be rich people. Because that, they say, if I'm rich, if I have X amount of money, then I'll be okay. Just to review a bit, if in fact, at the beginning of chapter 5, if he's talking about unbelievers, this is totally out out of sync with the rest of the book. Because he's been talking, it's a sermon to believers, and then why would he then suddenly pivot and say, okay, let's talk about those people out there. Um, To say that Christians would not act in such a way is, is to ignore the history of the church since the time of Jesus. It's not a pretty picture. It ignores that's what's going on today, even among believers Christians are not always compassionate in their use of wealth. But it also fails to appreciate what a Christian is. And a Christian is not, in fact, a perfect person, a perfect being, but someone who is a sinner, who has been called by God to follow in the steps of his son. And the reality is we fall time and time again. By the way, if we think that the first uh, six verses of chapter 5 are for unbelievers because Christians will automatically do what is right, yeah, that also, I think, fails to take into account a lot of things. We don't automatically do what is right. If we did, then the book of James serves no purpose. Why would James need to tell us these things? We could just automatically do it on our own. The reality is we live in the world We're not called to leave the world. We're in the world, but we are always in danger of being polluted by the world. And one of the great dangers is it isn't just that the world is out there trying to get in. The world has an ally in our hearts. That is, even though we are the children of God, we are still broken in constant need of repair. And there is an ally in our sinful hearts that is attracted to what the world has to offer the three things that James talks about in this third point of his sermon are three evidences that one does not walk the path of humility the first is slandering other people and perhaps that if you've not been with us you may not know to slander someone does not necessarily mean that you're telling a lie about them you may in fact be telling the truth but you are doing it because you are not being humble, you are setting yourself up above them and saying, hey everyone, look at what this person has done. The second evidence that one is not humble is they are presumptuous about the future. If we're gonna go to this city and we're gonna stay there for a year, we're gonna buy and sell, and we're going to make money. Um, And then the third is, how do you use your money? All of these are aspects which reveal that, in fact, we may have left the path of humility. A humble person acknowledges that he or she is in need of God's grace. The self-centered person feels no need of that. The self-centered person says, I know better than other people, and so I will tell you what's wrong with everybody else. Or, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow, next year, in 10 years, this is what I'm going to do. And such a person is, in fact, not compassionate in their use of wealth. They tend to be hoarders. They defraud people. They are overly self-indulgent. And they are oppressors. He gives us the four things. two of them deal with stuff for myself. But the second pair deal with how we treat other people. A compassionate use of wealth is not merely how do I use my money with others, there is that, but how do I use it for myself? Again, if you weren't with us last Sunday, you may wonder what I'm talking about. Look, if you would, at verse number 6 of James chapter 5. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. This, this just sounds... Incredibly harsh. Um, I, again, it'd be easier if we say, oh, well, James is talking obviously to unbelievers because we would never do this. Um, he's talking about, you know, you don't pay them what you owe them. You have people work for you and you don't pay them. And we would say, well, that's, that's not murder. We live in a society in which there are a lot of safety nets there are charitable organizations, there are government subsidies. No one's going to die if I don't pay them what I owe them. And so we might be tempted to think, well, James, certainly, okay, if he's talking to believers, he's talking to those believers and not me, because I would certainly not be guilty of that. The issue is wisdom. Are you walking the path of wisdom, which is also the path of humility? In a world in which power, by definition, s- describes relationships, are you in a powerful relation? Are you in a powerful position in a relationship? Um, yeah. And if you if you in fact are not in that power position, you will not survive in the marketplace. People would tell us. As I mentioned last Sunday, I think the one aspect of the use of wealth. That probably speaks most to us Is the the idea of self-indulgence We are people who are known as consumers It's all about consumption And it's about convenience Um, And such thinking has polluted Even the church itself So that now the gospel is seen as a product and the people in the pew are known as consumers. And so you must suit the product so that the consumers, in fact, will want to buy what it is that you have. We could go on, but let's get to the conclusion. We'll begin with the conclusion today, which begins in verse number seven. Remember, I've told you that it is a sermon. Introduction, three points, and a conclusion. And the way that a conclusion generally should work is that it should, in fact, be connected somewhat to the introduction. That the introduction, you know, is like, okay, this is what I'm going to tell you. And then the sermon, this is here I'm telling you. And then at the conclusion, this is what I've told you. That that all needs to tie together. Um, a lot of people don't see this. And so Martin Luther, for example, uh, said that he, that James threw things together, just sort of willy-nilly, he just, stream of consciousness or whatever, he just threw these things together and that there is in fact no structure to the book. Um, In all deference to our brother Martin Luther, I think he was quite wrong about that. The key to this book, it's mentioned in the beginning, and it's mentioned in the three points, the conclusion, is being double-minded. Which, just a side note, this is not new with James. We think he created the Greek word, but we find this in the book of Psalms, people who are double-minded. And what it means is to try to live in two worlds at the same time. To live as though God exists, and to live as though God does not exist at the same time. And James says, you know, someone who does this is unstable in all his ways. So, in chapter 2, it's believing or saying that you believe, but not acting. And James says, listen, you say you believe in God, great. (laughs) So do the demons. That faith is demonic. It's diabolical. True faith is faith that acts. So don't say, I believe, and then not do anything. That's being double-minded. He says that we should not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And in chapter 3, he talks about, or, yeah, chapter 3, about the tongue, that with the tongue we bless the creator, and with the tongue we curse the creature, made in the image of the creator. You can't have it both ways. You're being double-minded. And then at the end of chapter 3, which leads into chapter 4, he talks about two kinds of wisdom. Heavenly wisdom and earthly or devilish wisdom. And this is where it gets really serious. Because we say we want to have God's wisdom, which means taking his principles and putting them to action. But at the same time, we simply do what the world does. So we slander people, we are presumptuous about the future, and we don't use our wealth in the way that we should. James now comes full circle and where he began is now where he ends with a twist. It's not exactly the same as what we find in the introduction but it is there. There are two themes that come up in this conclusion that we saw in the introduction. Patience or perseverance and then prayer. In the conclusion Patience is mentioned seven times in verses 7 to 12, which is what we'll look at today. Prayer is mentioned seven times in verses 13 through 18, which the Lord willing we will look at next week. So James tells us, and we'll read the verses in a few minutes, that we are to be patient. How patient the farmer is, we are to be patient again, and then he gives us another example of patience and then he talks about perseverance, those who have persevered, and then the example of Job, Job who persevered. By patience, let me give you a definition. James takes, or what he means is the self-restraint, which does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. Patience is when something has done, someone has done something wrong to you, and you don't immediately strike back. the, the inclination is, in fact, to strike back. The three things that he mentions, the slandering, the presumption about the future, not using your wealth wisely, this doesn't seem strange to us, and that's precisely why James talks about it. This is the way the world thinks. And patience, or being impatient is, in fact, I think, the way the world would tell us to respond. Someone does something to us, and we immediately want to strike back. And patience, in fact, does not do that. Perseverance, James takes it to mean the temper which does not easily collapse under suffering. So there is patience, I think, from external circumstances, and perseverance in the midst of those circumstances, We will see this, Lord willing, next week, that patience and perseverance is the path to prayer. If we are impatient, and if we do not persevere, if we don't continue, then prayer is going to go by the wayside. Because we have taken matters into our own hands. We are impatient, and we don't stand up under difficulties. We strike back. Then prayer is going to be sort of the last thing on our minds. to tie it in with the three points if we are to care for those in need it means that we should pray for them when it comes to the matter of the tongue it means that we should use our tongues to pray for those who are in need and I think when it comes to the use of wealth we need to pray for guidance as well so patient perseverance and prayer okay? look if you would at verses 7 through 12 I'll read now Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. I mentioned last week that one of the problems we have oftentimes in studying scripture is we fail to realize that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions weren't there in the original text. James didn't write, okay, now here's chapter 5, verse number 7. He wrote a letter. But it makes it difficult for us if we don't know where. If I were to say, okay, you all open your Bibles to James, kind of at the end part, you know. Um, It helps that we have chapter divisions and verse divisions, okay? But oftentimes they lead us astray because we think, oh, here's a new thought, okay? Now he's changing direction, he's changing the subject. And when we come to verse number seven and he talks about patience, it's like, oh, yeah, because he was just talking about wealth, okay? Um, So now he's changing the subject, and he's talking about patience, and in fact, it is very much connected. So don't let the verse divisions throw you off. It is no stretch of the imagination to imagine that some of the people who heard the book of James the first time it was read—the copy went out across the Mediterranean basin and people heard this letter being read— that some of them, in fact, had suffered at the hands of people who were wealthy. They hadn't been paid a fair wage. Or what was promised to them, they had not been paid. And it is to these people that James says, brothers. By the way, you'll notice it. it shows up three times in these verses. We've seen this when we began the book of James uh, James doesn't say I'm up here and you all are down here and so here let me tell you what's what. He's like we're brothers. We're brothers and sisters. So brothers be patient. James is writing to brothers his brothers in Christ for whom patience is the last thing on their mind. I can almost imagine someone thinking are you serious? <laughs> you don't know what this guy did to me. I have a family to feed. I have children. And you want me to be patient when this guy promised me X amount for the work I did and then didn't pay me? I think that this letter may have been read by people to whom this would be the most difficult task. To ask such a person to be patient is almost asking the impossible. And in modern language, it would be a betrayal of their rights. I have the right to be paid what I was promised. And you're telling me to be patient? Yeah, I don't don't want to be patient. I want to be paid what I was owed. So, what James does is he tells them be patient, brothers, until the Lord's coming. By the way, be patient, it's an imperative. And if you've been with us, there are 104 verses in James. There are 50 imperatives, 50 commands. That's one every two verses. And it almost seems ironic to say, be patient. It's like, back off, James. You don't know what we've been through. But he tempers it by saying, my brothers. It is interesting that the metaphor he uses is not that of carpentry, James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he doesn't talk about that. Um, the disciples were fishermen. He doesn't use that. He instead uses uh, the metaphor of being a farmer, talking about a farmer being patient. Now, part of this I think we find so strange because, what, I'm going to wait for the rain for my crop to grow? No, I have irrigation. We have canals. You know, we have pipes. That's, he's living in a different time. And the way that, that crops were watered was by the rain. And in Palestine, in the first century, there were two seasons of rain. There are the autumn rains, or the early rains, and the late rains, which would come in the spring. The early rains would come in October, so we would be, in fact, in the midst of the early rains. And this prepares the soil for the, for the seed to be planted, And then you have the late rain, which comes in March and April, and this is to enlarge the grain. So it's almost time for harvest, but so that you have that final growth spurt. Um, But the farmer has to wait. The farmer has to be patient. In the same way, the Christian must be patient. In the introduction, he talked about life's trials, how that we are ambushed by trials of all different kinds. And through patience, and not without it, we grow, we gain maturity. We do not drift into maturity. We don't drift into holiness. It requires patience. It is a process. And we need to recognize that one day the Lord will make things right. Someone today reading this might say, Okay, Damon, it's been more than 19 centuries since James wrote this, and things still have not been made right. I think James would say, if he were here, be patient. But then he also says, stand firm. Patience, we imagine, is being passive. Just sort of fold your hands and just wait for things to happen. But he says, stand firm. Throughout the book, it's been about being inconsistent. One foot here, one foot there. You can sort of go back and forth. Believe, not believe. Bless, curse. Heavenly wisdom, demonic wisdom. And James is like, okay, you need to stand in one camp. You need to stand firm. The verb that he uses, by the way, is the same verb that is used in Luke chapter 9 when it speaks of Jesus at the end of his ministry looking to Jerusalem and deciding that's where I have to go and he resolutely he determined that's where I'm going and James uses the same word stand firm know that this is what you should do fix your hearts on the fact that the Lord in fact one day will return then he says, Don't grumble against each other. The call to patience only makes sense if there is a cause for impatience. And if you can't do something about someone who hasn't paid you what you're owed, if you can't physically, if, you know, if violence is another question, because they're in a higher position, you're in a lower position, then the temptation is, in fact, to say something about them, That's so-and-so, and then to slander them. You may, in fact, be telling the truth. You know, this person said that they would pay me X amount of money for work. I did the work and they never paid me. And you tell everyone, don't ever work for this guy because he won't pay you. Uh, James says, don't grumble. Don't grumble against each other. The fact is our hearts may let us down We may not stand firm James says stand firm And our tongues may let us down Because we will grumble against one another So why should I listen to what James has to say Well in verses 10, 11 and 12 He tells us of the blessing Or the blessings of being steadfast Of standing firm Let me read them to you again, verse 10, 11, and 12. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. In verse number nine, he talked about patience with regard to dealing with God's people. Now he turns to steadfastness. Because again, we might think of patience as just sort of passive, just sitting there. No. There are three points that I think he wants to make here. First of all, we should not be surprised when difficulties come our way. We might, in fact, and in fact we should expect that there will be things that happen to us that will require us to be patient. I don't think anyone can ever escape this. There are things which cause us to need to be patient. And here he sees the lives of the prophets. They had a special place in the plan of God, They were the guys who said, this is what God says. Thus saith the Lord. Can you imagine what higher position could they be? And and what happened? Some of them were put to death. Most of them were rejected out of hand. But they stood firm. They were faithful to God's commands. It did not give them immunity from suffering. We should not imagine, well, I'm a child of God. I I should not have any difficulties in life. The prophets were the mouthpieces of God and look what happened to them. They were ministers and they suffered. They were given the privilege of speaking the very words of God. Imagine, God spoke to the prophets so the prophets could speak to the people and the people, in some cases, killed them but certainly rejected what they had to say. Why should we think our lives would be any different? Secondly, he says, when we think of these people, we call them blessed or blessed. Um, would you consider Jeremiah the prophet blessed? What about Ezekiel? What about Hosea, Isaiah, and the others? I think most of us would say yes. Yes. But in the meantime, we've forgotten how difficult their lives were. These men who spoke for God, God spoke to them, and they spoke to the people. They, in fact, suffered. I heard a a talk given recently in which the speaker says, you know, be courageous, don't be afraid. You are like, I'm afraid somebody will say something bad on Facebook about me. It's like, and then he asks a question, what do you think Jeremiah's neighbors thought of him? His word was loathing. They loathed him. Now we say this guy's blessed. The blessed prophet Jeremiah. We shouldn't be surprised. And then he gives the example of Job. And we've gone through the book of Job over the years at least twice. And you may remember at least some of what we've studied. Would we say that he persevered? I think people would say no he didn't. Um, One quote Few of us would single out Job As a model of faithful endurance In the midst of suffering He is pictured as a bit self-righteous Overly insistent On getting an explanation For his unjust sufferings From the Lord So when you say perseverance Job is not the first person That comes to mind perhaps But listen to what another writer says Job is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. Job suffered and he complained but he never gave up. So patience doesn't mean sort of grin and bear it sort of grit your teeth and, and hopefully this will be over pretty soon there can be in fact a place for saying why, why is this happening to me it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right Lord, why are you letting this happen to me but if you know how the book of Job ended Job had an amazing revelation of who God was If you haven't read the book of Job it might be difficult the first parts but when you get to the last three chapters it's amazing. God revealed himself to Job in a way that he hadn't to anyone else at that point. So let me ask you would you want that revelation of God in your life? Yeah who wouldn't? Okay, then maybe you need to go through what Job did. Uh, No, I I don't want to suffer. Um, That is, in fact, part of the calling of what it means to be a Christian. Then verse number 12, again, this is, I think, one of the reasons why people think that James just cobbled stuff together. It sort of seems out of place where he talks about the fact that we need to be careful in how we speak, that we should not swear by anything, that our yes be yes, our no be no. Um, By the way, in our society, perjury is a serious offense. When you go to court and you swear an oath, you have to tell the truth. And if you don't, then there are severe consequences for that. What about what Jesus said, though, about swearing? This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Again, you have heard that it was said to the the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus is dealing with the fact that people would swear oaths to sort of give the appearance of I'm making a binding statement. You know, when your kids visit, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. You know, I'm telling the truth. Jesus said, just say yes or just say no. <coughs> in the first century, even among the pagans, they said about the Jews, these guys are always doing these oaths. They're always swearing things. And they're false. Heedless and false swearing. And James is like, yeah, don't do that. Remember, we are to control our tongues. And part of controlling our tongues is being careful with what we say. Um, Again, it would be wonderful if this was not a problem for Christians uh, that we would never use or have never used duplicity, mishandling, saying, swear to God and tell him the truth, when in fact we're not. The application to us, I think, in some part might seem really obvious, like don't, don't use bad language. Um, Don't use God's name in a light way. We saw this when we went through the Ten Commandments. Um, Don't use expressions that somehow try to reinforce what you're trying to say. And this is where it gets really scary. um, Because I think we're all guilty of this. You know, for heaven's sake. What is that? It's just somehow trying to reinforce the truthfulness of what we're saying. If we look back on our lives, we must confess that God has graciously brought us through difficulties in order to bring us closer to himself. In fact, as you get older, which happens to all of us, we can look back with gratitude for the benefits we have received Through the difficult experiences that God has brought into our life. At the same time, there are many words we wish we could take back. The things that we said during those seasons of darkness. And we may in fact have learned important lessons that we have since forgotten. We are to be patient, we are to stand firm, and we are to persevere. But there are two other things that come out in these verses, and I don't know if you've noticed them. One is joyful hope. He is coming. The Lord is coming. And secondly, fearful expectation. There will, in fact, be a judgment. In both of them, there is a looking forward. In verses 7 and 8, we expect a coming Lord. In verse 9, there is a judge at the door. And then in verses 10 and 11, what the Lord brought about at the end of the story of Job, uh, in the book of Job. But then finally, condemnation. We will be condemned if we do not use our w- words wisely. So let's look at the coming Lord and the coming judge. This is something that throws people, in fact, have accused Christianity of being wrong, that James was wrong, that Paul was wrong about various things. He talks about the Lord's coming. And the word that is used in Greek is parousia, perhaps familiar to you. And it is used in the New Testament in two different ways. One is it speaks of an arrival, that someone is coming. Okay, that's the parousia. But the other way that it is used is that they are, in fact, there right now. They're present with you right now. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, I am glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived. That is, there was a parousia. They arrived. But in Philippians chapter 2, he said, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, parousia, when he was with them, But now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The word parousia, when it speaks of the second coming of Jesus, I would argue is used in both ways. There is a way, a sense in which one day Jesus will physically return. There is another way in which Jesus is present with us now. You remember what Jesus said where two or three are gathered in my name I'm there in the midst that's the work of the Holy Spirit he communicates to us the person of Jesus the parousia is here now it will happen later but it is here right now and so we have reason for hope we have reason for joy that in fact the Lord is with us now so imagine you're working out in the field And you're really concerned because this guy may not pay you. And at the end of the day, he doesn't pay you. Okay, the Lord is with you. The parousia is here right now. The Lord Jesus is present with you right now. When the Lord returns, there will be a separation. There will be those who will be condemned and those who will spend eternity with him. So if you're on the short end of the stick, so to speak, you look forward to the parousia with joyful expectation. Yes, the Lord is with us right now, and we are grateful for that. And one day he will come and take us to be with him forever. On the other hand, if you're the guy ripping off the workers, the Lord's coming back. Yeah, that that doesn't bring a lot of joy, does it? James seeks to comfort his readers who have been ripped off. But he also seeks to speak to those who are ripping them off, their brothers and sisters who are cheating them and not paying them what they owe them. To those who have been ripped off, he says, stand firm, be patient. The Lord's coming is near. The Lord's right there with you. And one day he will return physically. Um, The Lord is with us And as we sang in our first hymn Of his tender mercies um, He's with us now And one day he will return But for those who are Ripping people off You will be judged The judge is standing at the door By the way, parousia, it's not just for joyful expectation. It's for condemnation. It isn't just like, okay, at the end of the day, I'm going to have to pay the bill. I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and be judged. No, you're going to be judged right now. And so don't be like the world. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world, thinking this is the way to get ahead cheat people, lie, tell people I'm going to pay you x amount for this work and then don't pay them that much and you can keep the difference in your for yourself. No, the judge is here right now and in fact he's at the door. In the parable of the talents uh, which Jesus told uh, people, servants were given certain amounts of money and then they were told to act accordingly. You know this Actually, the the master never says, go out and make money. He simply gives them something. It's in their care. And the one who had five earned five more. The one who had two got two more. The one who had one, you know the story, buried it in the ground. We have, in fact, been given God's gift. We have been given salvation. We've been given scripture. We've been given the Holy Spirit as the beginning of our salvation. We have the gospel message. The question is, what have we done with this? Have we forgotten that, yeah, it's not just like, well, one day, so maybe before I die, I'll pray and ask for forgiveness, and God will wipe the slate. The judge is here right now. He has given you all of these gifts, all of these wonderful things, and what have you done with them? Have you become more like Christ? Have you not grown at all? Have you not matured? Do you know the scripture in a better way than you did, let's say, last year, or five years ago, or ten years ago? Scripture is a gift. What have we done with it? So the Lord is coming, but the Lord is near. And James, as he wraps up his sermon in telling people to care for those in need and to, be, to control our tongues, be careful how we use our tongues and to not be polluted by the world, he wants us to remember that we are to be patient. The Lord willing, we'll see next week, we are to pray. But we are to be patient, we are to stand fast, and we are to recognize with joyful expectation that the Lord is with us right now. And one day he will come and take us to be with himself. As I said, a lot of people see what James says here and what Paul does, and I'll read Peter in a minute. It's like, oh, those first century Christians, they thought Jesus was coming back right away. They thought, oh, it's going to happen right now. And it didn't happen, so they lied. Um, let me read to you from 2 Peter, Peter chapter 3. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. We might think he's slow because it's been almost two millennia now since the Lord left us our reckoning of time is quite different than God's reckoning of time. A thousand years for us, like a day with the Lord. Two millennia, that's two days. And when we say, by the way, why is the Lord taking so long? Why the delay? We should, in fact, recognize this is mercy. God is giving people a chance to repent. God is being merciful. We need to be ready. So, be patient, stand firm, persevere, and know that the Lord is here and that He will one day return as well. So, that's the first part of the conclusion. The Lord willing, next week we will look at prayer. And it's interesting, in chapter 1, He talks about praying for yourself. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Lord, give me wisdom. Uh, In the conclusion, it's very different. It's praying for others. But he's wrapping up the sermon, and the Lord willing, we will do so next week as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the book of James and what he has to say we confess that sometimes it seems strange to us sometimes we think that really doesn't apply to me i'm I'm not like that we fail to recognize the truth that it very much does apply to us we are grateful that the lord jesus is with us even now we're also grateful that one day he will return and so we should have joyful expectation Joyful hope of his return, but also that he is with us now. We're not abandoned. And it seems that your people throughout church history have known this and we have forgotten it. That those who have suffered persecution did so joyfully because they knew the Lord Jesus was with them. Thank you for bringing us together today for your goodness in our lives, your grace, and your love. Again, we pray for our dear sister Lonnie, that you would touch her, give her some relief, and may she know that the Lord Jesus is right there with her, even in the midst of her suffering. We pray for Helen, who just learned of the passing of a dear friend, you would comfort her and give her grace in this time of loss. Again, I thank you for loving us and for proving your love by sending your son, the Lord Jesus. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.